Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Welcome to St. Ambrose. Good to have you all here for a very timely topic tonight, and also uh, to listen to a parishioner of St. Ambrose, a man of great faith and insight. So thank you all for coming tonight. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus Christ, we ask you to bless us this evening, teach us to have a deeper knowledge of the faith, a deeper love of the faith, and a deeper desire to spread the faith. Help us to come this evening to learn and then to go back into the world as apostles to share the good news of our Catholic faith to family, friends, and to the world. And tonight, in a special way, during this anniversary of the apparitions at Fatima, we ask for the protection and also the intercession of Our Lady Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Most sacred heart of Jesus, have mercy on us. Immaculate heart of Mary, St. Ambrose, St. Kateri Tikawitha, pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. All right, our speaker this evening is the uh, director of the Westminster Institute. Um, a former director of the Voice of America, Robert Riley, has taught at the National Defense University and has served in the White House in the office of the Secretary of Defense. Mr. Riley is a member of the board of the Middle East Media Research Institute. He has written for the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Reader's Digest, and National Review, among many other publications. His most recent book, a revised and expanded version of his 2002 work, Surprised by Beauty, was published in April this year, and he's actually going to be giving a uh, talk on it in September. Uh, we're delighted to have him back. So please, a warm welcome to uh, Robert Riley. Well, I begin, of course, by thanking uh, the Institute for Catholic Culture for hosting me this evening. Uh, I was asked, um, maybe during the winter, could I do a sort of a squib for ICC, having attended a number of lectures and having given a number of talks, could I say something about it? And I didn't have to hesitate to think of what that might be. I simply said, it's like coming home. And that's what it's like to be with you, whether I'm on uh, this side of the podium or that. Of course, I also have to thank Father Fisher, my pastor, uh, for hosting this. And of course, for uh, Father Hayes being here as well this evening. Thank you very much. So, I, you know what, I, I'm going to begin today just by going over some recent things to illustrate how crazy our culture has become. You're inundated with this kind of thing, so you won't be surprised by any of these, but they're constant in their daily. The only paper I read except on Sundays is the Wall Street Journal. And lo and behold, on the weekend section, here is a column that begins, we live in a random universe. Oh? <laughs> if, if so, how would you know? <laughs> if it were all random, you'd have no standard against which to know it was random. So obviously, it can't be a random universe. But Father Hayes would understand because he loaned to me Expelled, which is a film with Ben Stein talking about how it's prohibited to say anything against the master of randomness, Darwin. <clears throat> 
and you'll be expelled if you do or if you refer to an intelligent designer. So that's just a little tiny thing. You know, there's, there's, it's, it's random. Well, there are all th kinds of things that you can do if things are random, like random things. <laughs> now this is, I, I, okay, once a week, Sunday, Washington Post, just to take the temperature to see what new level of depravity they've reached and in, in what they promote in, in the news as well as the culture section. This is a very mild one, but it, it reflects something about slightly narcissistic, narcissistic culture. I went on my dream honeymoon by myself. 34-year-old woman who has this epiphany and that feeling of peace and awe I imagined I'd have when I came here with my one true love, it was in me the whole time. <laughs> you don't need that, uh, that spouse, that other one. You can just uh, go on the honeymoon alone, but that's it. Okay, now we have something a little more colorful here. Another Washington uh, <clears throat> Post item, but, but it was recorded, it was reported in, uh, widely in all the national press. This is the ordination of, you can't say him, no, that's, you can't say her, uh, so you uh, say them, or M. This uh, entity, uh, this person, had um, been raised in the United Methodist Church, uh, but somehow during her studies, to be more specific, at Theological Seminary in Texas, a year or so of reading theology, feminist theology and queer theology included, came to realize that she wasn't really straight. So becomes a lesbian. However, she's got this burning vocation to be a deacon in the United Methodist Church. So as she approaches this um, requests uh, ordination as a deacon, the church, the United Methodists, have uh, their equivalent of canon law that says you can't be a practicing homosexual or lesbian. Uh, in fact, you're not supposed to be in any kind of extramarital relationship to enter the diaconate. But it doesn't say anything in here about not ordain, uh, ordaining them which is what she's known as now. She can't be referred to as him or her, she's binary. So they went ahead and ordained her. <laughs> Pour out your Holy Spirit upon M, the bishop said. Now send them. Well, it's only one person, but this is now them. Isn't that interesting? Um, closer to home, we have uh, the Fairfax County School System Public Schools Parent Resource Center coming out and coming around. Join us for an LGBTQ panel discussion. Parents, counselors, and LGBTQ adolescents will share experiences and answer your questions. Browse LGBTQ resources in the Parent Resource Center Library, etc. Now, when in Fairfax County the vote came up about uh, propagandizing the transgender ideology in this county, how many of them do you think voted not to do it? Two. So two of them had Thomas More moments, and the vast majority of them voted to instill the transgender ideology. I couldn't go to that meeting, but I tried to plant a question, which would have been to the, the board members, if any of you feel the urge of nature during this meeting, 
and have to leave the room, would you have any hesitation as to whether you went to the men's room or the ladies' room? And if not, why would you choose to foist that confusion upon our children? But of course they did it anyway. Now why did they do that? As I was given to understand the threatening letter from the Department of Education under President Obama, the guidance was fall in line or your federal funds, Title IX or whatever they're called, would be threatened. So that's, there, there you go, and that's what they did. <laughs> well, that's pretty bad. Here's something also bad. Now, you may have heard that uh, Secretary of Defense Mattis a couple of days ago, ordered a six-month delay in implementing the Obama-era transgender policies at the Defense Department. There are 15 director, directives in various military services to implement this ideology, accommodate and recruit transgender persons. Because as Ash Carter, and other uh, Obama-era people said, we can't afford not to call upon the resources of the transgender community to defend the United States. Right? Think of all we'd be giving up. <laughs> the service chiefs had asked for a two-year delay. Unfortunately, Secretary Mattis only said six months and made clear this isn't to prejudice the outcome. That's very, very troubling indeed. You need a study to say this is a problem? Even worse, was it yesterday or the day before there was a vote in Congress to put an amendment into the defense uh, policy bill saying that no funds were to be spent on transgender surgery in the US military. The amendment fell short 209 to 214, so five votes. Every single Democrat voted against the amendment, and obviously 24 Republicans joined the Democrats so that this funding would be there. Well, how much are we talking about? $3.7 billion because it's not only the surgery, it could be lifelong hormone treatments. Now, to tell you the extent to which this has gone, and we'll just spend a few more moments look, going through the looking glass here to see how nuts things have become before I begin a diagnosis for how this is so. And what kind of view of reality could you have to allow this kind of thing? Here I've, I have the US Army training slides for uh, enacting the gender ideology and how to deal with it. I was in the Army. My oldest son is going on active duty in early September, albeit in the Marines. I don't know how we could do that. Okay, I heard a few. No, I admire them. So here we have policy on military service of transgender soldiers training module, commanders and leaders. This is a draft, it hasn't been uh, completed, but I, I have it here. Here's Ash Carter's stirring announcement of 100% of America's population. We need these trans men, transgendered people. And who are they? Those who have a mismatch between their gender and their sex assigned at birth. <laughs> well, who assigned it? <laughs> Where do you pick it up? I mean, is there in the nursery someone? Did the nurse do it? The you assigned at birth? You have your genitalia assigned at birth? What the hell is... Did anyone never see a sonogram? It's already there. Okay. So, um, 
this transition process commences living socially in the gender role consistent with their preferred gender. All right. And then this transition is till the person becomes stable in the preferred gender. After surgery, it's hard to go back and forth. <laughs> Continuing medical care, including but not limited to cross-sex hormone therapy, may be required to maintain a state of stability. Well, 3.7 billion, you can stabilize a lot with. Well, the first step is assessing if the soldier uh, is to determine if gender transition is medically necessary. What are they talking about? Medically necessary? If a woman has breast cancer, sure, you've got to perform a mastectomy, but other, other than that, it's medically necessary to lop off your breasts? Here is my favorite. They have a number of vignettes of what the commander is supposed to do when the transition is complete. So here's the one. Today the soldier approached his commanding officer to discuss his newly confirmed pregnancy. <laughs> to discuss his pregnancy. Understand that soldiers who have transitioned gender may remain susceptible to medical conditions associated with their birth gender. <laughs> How could that happen? They preferred another, I just. And then we have this ah, delicate issue. Those of you who have served in the military or been to basic training or know that Things are a little uh, crude and rough. Uh, there are no shower stalls or even stalls between toilets, at least not where I went to basic. So what do we do in this uh, situation? A soldier transitioned from male to female is indicated. The soldier did not have sex reassignment surgery. The transgender service member is using the female showers and has expressed privacy concerns regarding the open bay shower configuration. Similarly, other soldiers have expressed discomfort showering with a female who has male genitalia. I mean, Evelyn Waugh, I mean, where, what, do you have a satirist who could write something like this? This is. Science fit what? All soldiers will use the billeting bathroom and shower facilities associated with their gender marker. Uh, accommodation cannot isolate or stigmatize the transgender soldier. You see, so they're the ones around whom these things have to be organized. That's where it belongs. I'll leave it down there on the floor. <laughs> So now, um, where are the adults? I received this cri de corps from a mid-career naval officer who has to remain anonymous for obvious reasons when I read this to you. She's in command of a small military training facility. Quote, my service has issued its transgender training mandate for all commanding officers to train, indoctrinate their personnel in the new policy by early 2017. That's what General Mattis has delayed by six months now. The training is based on the, uh, disturbing falsehoods in gender ideology which ignore biology and common sense. As part of the policy, commanding officers must facilitate the requests of individuals for transgender treatment, regardless of one's personal or religious beliefs. And once they're considered stable, etc., they must be accommodated in the birthing and bathroom facilities of their preferred gender, regardless of whether they still possess their opposite sex anatomy. 
I did attempt to speak up about this policy, but was silenced by my chain of command. I suspect few senior leaders are willing to speak up about it either. If you can do anything to raise awareness or speak to someone in the new administration about it, you would be doing a great service for millions of service members. This transgender policy has caused a crisis of sorts for me personally as I pondered the future of my career. There can be no question in anyone's mind who has not conceded to this false gender ideology that sex is anything other than what we're born with determined by our DNA, etc. Knowing this biological, universal, common sense truth, military leaders like myself are now faced with the dreadful choice of having to violate our consciences to carry out not just a misguided but an immoral policy or disobey the universal code of military justice. I agonized over this decision for months and nearly chose the latter course but ultimately held black back to protect the wishes and interests of my family who didn't want to see me fired from my job or have my reputation destroyed. My second option was to retire. I did submit my retirement letter. I later retracted it. A senior officer said stay and challenged the policy from within. I object so fiercely to this policy. It's a grave lie about human nature. Strikes at the very ontological structures of reality. It places commanding officers like myself in the position of having to facilitate an individual's decision to pursue hormonal alteration or mutilation of their healthy bodies while their sick minds go untreated. Please help! This is what is being foisted on our courageous men and women with everything else with which they have to deal. But this is more important than meeting military standards of readiness and preparing to fight and if necessarily die for this country. For this, this is more important. No matter what the cost, and you can see the cost is well beyond 3.7 billion. So I sent that letter to two former national security advisors to the president and said, please help. And one of them said that he was he was himself a Navy Admiral. He was totally dismayed that there was not a single resignation in the senior ranks, either for the imposition of the open homosexuals in the military or the transgender nonsense. <clears throat> so we shall see. I haven't even started my talk yet, but I, <laughs> I feel better after having vented so you see, I have to tell another little story because Father Hayes, Father Fisher, and I were talking about this very funny video on YouTube about a student, uh, no, no, a young man who goes to, I believe it is Washington University in Washington State. He's five foot nine, and he goes up to a number of students and, and with a, interviewed them and said, <clears throat> hi, um, you know, what would you say if I told you that um, I'm a woman? And uh, in fact, that I'm a Chinese woman. <laughs> and in fact, that I'm a six foot five Chinese woman. So one answer, well, I, you know, I have a lot of questions just because on the outside, I would assume you were a white man. So they got some questions. I mean, I might be a little surprised, but I would say, good for you, yeah. <laughs> be who you are. They want to offend him, but then he, he suggested that <clears throat> he take all that back. Actually, he was seven years old. Did they have any problem with his identifying as a seven-year-old? Hey, if you feel seven at heart, then so be it. Yeah, good for you, said one student. Then he suggested registering for first grade. Any problem? He kept trying to you know, elicit a response. 
So another, um, I feel like that's not my place to say, as another human, to say someone is wrong or to draw, draw lines or boundaries. I, I think the New York City Health Department feels that way because they have a form for new parents requesting birth certificates that asks the woman giving birth if she is male or female. <laughs> they must have seen the army training slides. <laughs> He's giving birth, right? Now, uh, of course, this gets, this gets really ugly. Uh, I was speaking uh, to the Americans for Truth in Chicago Americans for Truth about homosexuality and the whole agenda. And um, Peter La Barbera, a very courageous man, is the president of this organization. And he showed a clip, a news clip from Chicago, in which he appeared to present the side of sanity. But the, uh, the main thing was of a teenage girl with her parents. And she had decided she was uh, a man. And the parents expressed, uh, you know, a lot of concern, but she said that she was, you know, suicidal and she really needed to become a man. And so they very compassionately said, well, let's, let's go with it. Of course, she had a double mastectomy. As I just looked at it, I watched her and I said, well, so, so they acceded to a partial suicide. Oh, so you're not going to kill. Well, let's just kill you partly by killing you as a girl. And we, as your parents, will be complicit in this. And so that's what they did. And of course, they interviewed the doctor who was his mannerisms, his, his vocal intonation. I've been around a lot of this stuff, so... So I know I knew he was a homosexual. And Peter, who had uh, looked into the thing, said, indeed, yes, the guy's an active homosexual. And he was endorsing it, embracing it, saying how, how you know, what a very good thing this is to do. And I thought, well, if, if this fellow uh, denies his essence as a man, he's more or less impelled to deny her essence as a woman, and more or less compelled to do this barbaric surgery upon her, right? Because after all, the world is random, right? I said, okay, now I'm gonna start my talk. Um, Aristotle in the politics said, quote, the nature of things consist in their end or consummation. For what each thing is when its growth is completed, we call the nature of that thing, be it a man or a horse or a family. So everything has a nature that's defined by the end toward which it is directed. Aristotle came to understand this through the four causes. Right? This is called the metaphysics of the bathroom, so fasten your seatbelt. Here comes the metaphysics. Maybe some of you uh, had this in school. The four causes, the four aspects of being are material cause, formal cause, efficient cause, and final cause. It's very easy to understand. You have a table. Uh, the material cause is the wood. The formal cause is the shape of the table that makes it a table. The efficient cause is the carpenter who made the table. Now by final cause, we, we mean what makes it a table or say take an analogy from a living thing, an acorn. What is the final cause uh, of an acorn? An oak tree, that's what it is inherently ordered, constituted to become. 
So the final cause of the acorn is the oak tree. Now, according to this understanding by uh, Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas, and, is that all of those things that contribute to a thing achieving its final end are good for it. And all of those things that prevent it or inhibit it from achieving its final end are bad for it. So the acorn, if it's in fertile soil and it gets moisture, those, and it will go, grow into that oak tree. Those things are good for it. If there is uh, too much acid in the soil uh, and there's a drought, those things are, are bad for it and will never complete its, its growth into the oak tree or achieve its final end. So it's very clear what's good for it and what's bad for it. Now when it comes to man, we have a slightly more complicated situation in this respect. It's not that we have any trouble understanding what the final end of man is, but unlike any other creature in the universe, he has free will. I have deer in my yard all the time. They're lovely. I love them. My wife is very afraid of deer ticks. She doesn't. But all of those deer uh, have no choice as to whether they will uh, do those things which are good for achieving its end or not. By instinct, they, they have to. A deer will never say, I think I'll go on retreat and not eat this week. <laughs> right? It, it doesn't have any free will. A human being can obviously choose to do those things which comport with its end, like red wine, <laughs> or it can refuse and do those things which are, are bad for it. This is why among creation alone, or at least in this universe, we only speak of man as moral. Man is the quintessentially moral creature because he can choose. And that choice is ineluctably moral because what he is choosing will either contribute to the achievement of his end as a human being or it will inhibit it. And those things which inhibit it or go against it are immoral. And those things that advance it are moral. You can know this with exactly the same certitude that you can know what's good for the, the acorn. And what does Aristotle say the final end of man is? Man at his best, at his man fulfilled. Happiness. Well, how do you, how do you, how do you achieve that? And Aristotle makes very clear, well, only through the virtuous life. Virtue is what is natural to man, even though he can choose vice, even though he's tempted to choose vice. Vice is not natural to him. He will become disfigured, less than a man. By the way, just one thing. <clears throat> that's necessary to say in respect to what nature lets us know, the end lets us know about the e evil or goodness of what we're going to choose. Nature <clears throat> contains within it oughtness, what ought to be. We know what the acorn ought to be because we know what a full-grown flourishing oak is. And we know what man ought to be because we know man at his best. So that oughtness is embedded in the structure of our being. It's not something imposed from the outside. So keep in mind that term oughtness. So Thomas uh, Aristotle says that this final end, this happiness, 
has to comport with the highest faculty in man. What's the highest faculty in man? His reason. And what is the object of that reason? What? Okay, it's the truth. Of course it's the truth. But what is the highest truth? God. God's the highest truth. So Aristotle says there is this something, there is this scintilla of the divine in man. And though it be small, it is the highest thing in him, which he should give everything else up to cultivate and achieve. Now, what does Aristotle say about God? He says he's thought thinking himself. He's also the first mover in other things, but he's thought thinking himself. So God is above all contemplation. And of course, since he's complete, he's contemplating himself. And therefore, the, if man is going to imitate the divine in whatever inadequate way he can, guess what his contemplation will be of? The divine, the contemplation of God. That is finally our end, and in that extraordinary uh, statement by Thomas Aquinas, he says that the happiness of man is the vision of God's essence. Can you imagine? That is what completes us in a way in which nothing else can. And of course, God has chosen to take us beyond that vision of his own essence to share in his actual life. Something beyond, despite the extraordinary premonitions Aristotle had, something beyond his imagination. So perfect and final and perfect happiness consists in nothing else than the vision of the divine essence. And of course, you can only approach that through virtue. And you can only be virtuous if you know what the end of man is and your actions comport with that end. That's virtuous action, moral action. And if you don't have that moral action, you can't have that vision because your sight will be occluded deliberately by yourself. You can't stand to see that goodness because it's a reproach. You've chosen to do what is evil. Now, obviously what we've been talking about with all of those disgraceful episodes with which I began is a denial that man has ends. It's a denial that he has this nature constituted uh, by final, the final cause in him. And the entire modern project is premised on the denial of formal and final causality. Remember how we began with the four causes? Material, formal, efficient, final. The modern project is to strip out the final cause and the formal cause. Meaning you've got matter there, you have the material cause, but what is it? It has no form. Well, how could that, how could you have matter without form? That's kind of lunatic. You don't have a final cause toward which the thing is directed or to which the efficient cause is directed as the cabinet maker makes the table. So that's, that's gone. So you just have the material cause and the efficient cause. What does that do? What does stripping out formal and final, final causality do? It means the whole order moral, the whole mortar, moral order of nature disappears. So you no longer have a way of knowing what virtue is as opposed to what vice is, what comports with your end because you no longer have an end. You are, after all, random. But what does the, what's the advantage of having efficient causality and matter? 
Well, it seems that you can simply make things whatever you want to make them. And there is no standard by which you uh, need to decide what to make them other than your will, other than your desires, other than your passions. Let's get to a little uh, theological bit. There's an extremely important statement in Thomas Aquinas in which he says that will follows intellect. Will follows intellect. Intellect is primary. What's he talking? He's talking about God, the divine intellect. Remember how God is introduced to us in St. John? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. Word, what Word is logos, which means not just Word, it means reason. So in Revelation, in the New Testament, God introduces himself in Christ as reason, as logos. So Thomas says, will follows the intellect. It's the divine intellect that determines what is, and it's the will that then carries out what the intellect determines. Of course, these are real rough analogies because everything is simultaneous in God. This is Thomas Aquinas, so we'll use it. Now, it is only this under theological grasp of God in which his divine intellect is primary that you have an understanding of the order in nature and the order in yourselves and the ends in your nature that direct you to your ultimate goodness. That's because in God himself, Will follows intellect. And in you, that's the way you, we are supposed to operate. Our wills are supposed to follow our intellects. We are supposed to know what was, is good. Our minds are given to us to come to understand what is good. And then we are morally obliged to will it, to choose it, to do those things that will fulfill our nature, right? Now, what if we, we flip that? What if we say the intellect proceeds from the will? What does that mean? It, what? It means, yeah, it's chaos. What it means is that God can will anything. Guess what theology embraces that view of God as pure will and power? Sunni, a large part of Sunni Islam does that. And that's why, as Benedict XVI pointed out, Allah can do the opposite of what he, he just did. He can annihilate all of creation, or he can, he can make it so it never was. And he can withdraw his word. He has no obligations whatsoever. That's because his intellect follows his will. His will is primary. Now, what happens if you're in a culture which has accepted a theology like that? Guess what? In your lives, your intellect, will, your reason will follow your will. You will use your reason simply to obtain the things which your will has determined it wants. So, there is a famous statement by the iniquitous Thomas Hobbes and the equally iniquitous David Hume showing this transmogrification, transmogrification that takes place when you flip the relationship between will and intellect. Here's what Hobbes said. The thoughts, the thoughts are to the desires as scouts and spies to range abroad and find a way to the things desired. See, your, your reason is reduced to a tool of your appetites. You're married, you want that other woman? Come on, little buddy reason, let's find the way to her, right? That's what he's... So your reason is only to serve your passions, not to tell you get control of your passions, and then David Hume's infamous statement that reason is but a slave to the passions. 
So there we go. And um, <clears throat> this is what animates the modern project. And the instrument of the modern project is science. Science only comprehends, science, you know, is, is, is a very um, narrow discipline. <clears throat> Sorry to any scientists in the room, but there is a hierarchy in knowledge. And science can know, according to its own criteria, only matter in motion. That's all. It can only know material causality and efficient causality. If you look at the way in which uh, science goes about coming to know anything, <clears throat> it excludes final causality and formal causality. It's not, it's not uh, you know, something deliberate. It's, it's not within its competence. So if you reduce all knowledge to simply scientific knowledge, you have excluded that formal and final causality. And the advantage you get from doing so is putting all things in relationship to you as they were once thought to be in relationship to God. You see, because now I'll become the cause of things and I'll do so because I have this all-powerful instrument of science within, within which to transform them to my will. Right? Is that, what, is that what's happening? Is that what's happening with this transgender thing? The surgery, the grotesque reconstruction of genitalia to pretend they're something they're, they're not? This is all based upon this premise. It's all based upon this kind of theology and this kind of metaphysics. Well, let's just go to the Pope. He pretty much nails this. When he was in Poland for World Youth Day, daughter Catherine smiling, she was in Krakow for this. He addressed the Polish bishops. And here's what he said, quote, we are experiencing a moment of the annihilation of man as the image of God, unquote. He, he specifically included within this disfacement quote, the ideology of gender, unquote. And he was clearly outraged. He said, quote, today children, children are taught in school that everyone can choose his or her sex, and this is terrible, unquote. You ought to come to the Fairfax School Board and have a chat-chat with them. Then he quoted Benedict XVI, who had said to Francis recently, Holy, quote, holiness, this is an age of sin against God the creator, unquote. Pope Francis's response was, quote, he is very perceptive. God created man and woman. God created the world in a certain way, and we are doing the exact opposite. Marion Duddy Burke, the executive director of Dignity USA, supposedly an organization of Catholic LGBT proponents, said the Pope, quote, the Pope doesn't understand the danger that his words can mean for gender non-conforming people, unquote. Well, the danger is not in the Pope's words, it's in their non-conforming, non-conforming with reality. That's very damaging. The Pope said in his recent encyclical, warned about the ideology of gender, quote, creation is prior to us and must be received as a gift. At the same time, we are called to protect our humanity. And this means in the first place, accepting it and respecting it as it was created, unquote. Benedict XVI again, quote, when the freedom to be creative becomes the freedom to create oneself, then necessarily the maker himself is denied and ultimately man too is stripped of his dignity as a creature of God 
as the image of God at the core of his being. The defense of the family is about man himself, and it becomes clear that when God is denied, human dignity also disappears. And so it does when uh, these hideous, terrible operations are performed. Now, you may be aware of the uh, controversy over North Carolina's bathroom law, and the then Attorney General Lynch, who said it was contrary to justice. Justice, by the way, the classical definition of justice is giving to things their due according to what they are. So before you can behave justly, you have to know what something is, right? Now, if you treat a man as if he were a dog, you'd be behaving un unjustly. Why? Because a man isn't a dog. Or one of my favorite Abraham Lincoln quotes is, what if a tail is a leg? How many legs then would a dog have? Five? No, because a tail isn't a leg. A tail isn't a leg, so it's still only four legs on the dog. So Miss Lynch doesn't know that. Now, so it's nature that tells us what things are. Now, this is true even if the man thinks he is a dog or in today's parlance, self-identifies as a canine. <laughs> this would still not excuse the person who treats him as one, and it would be worse if that person attempted to graft a tail onto the man to make him more comfortable in his self-identity as a dog. It would certainly be an act of tyranny were a state to legislate that this or any man should relieve himself, not in the public bathrooms designated for men, but where dogs do. And this is because whatever anyone might say or do, this is a man and not a dog. And we must treat him for what he is rather than for something he is not. Now, you know, once again, how do you, how do you reach this level of unreality? How do you really uh, do it? Other than, I gave you a little uh, theological and metaphysical taste, but now I'm going to give you some of what is at the heart of this. So to deny reality, uh, you, you simply empower yourself to do so, but reality has to be gotten out of the way, uh, first theoretically and then actually. And Jean-Paul Sartre, come on, boo, anybody? Jean-Paul Sartre. <laughs> showed how to do this by saying that existence precedes essence. Remember when I said you yank out the final and formal causality? This is the result. Existence precedes essence. That means you exist, but not as anything. Well, how could you do that? You've got to be the, the, the chair or the, the acorn or the person. How can you have existence without essence? The only being that has existence as essence is God, who exists necessarily because his essence is existence. But there's no other creature. There's no creature that has existence as essence, right? Yeah. The dog doesn't exist necessarily. He only exists for a period of time during which he possesses existence. Same obviously is true for us. Now what is the practical result of this? Quote, Sartre, atheistic ex ex existentialism states that if God does not exist, there is at least one being in whom existence precedes essence, a being who exists before he can be defined by any concept, and that being is man. What is meant here by saying that existence precedes essence? It means that, first of all, man exists, turns up, appears on the scene, and only afterwards defines himself. If there's no God to conceive of human nature, then there's no human nature. Okay, A plus for logic on that one. 
Now Sartre's paramour, Simone de Beauvoir, made the consequences of this uh, belief explicit in terms of gender. She too asserted that nothing has an a priori identity. The, quote, the basis of existentialism is precisely that there is no human nature and thus no feminine nature. Therefore, she said so presciently, quote, the mammary glands that develop at puberty have no role in the woman's individual economy. They can be removed at any moment in her life, unquote. So theoretically, when reality disappears, voila, a woman's breasts disappear too. So there's an obvious contradiction in all of this, uh, as we were, since we already did our, our metaphysical homework. Since, since nothing can exist prior to its essence, everything is sort of in, in a state of peril. Uh, and this is the whole dread of the existential dilemma, man facing nothingness as matter without form, a metaphysical impossibility. Sartrean man is over a nihilistic abyss and with no guidance from non-existent nature must pull himself up by his own metaphysical bootstraps by somehow creating his own essence. His own as, what he exists as, through his willful acts. He gets to, in fact, must make himself up giving his formless matter its own form. In short, he needs to self-identify. And in Sartre's case, guess what it was as? A Stalinist, Marxists. Makes perfect logic. You have a project to remake man and um, through, of course, pure force at disposal of your will. And so that, that was the, the logical result of that project in his specific case. But as we see, there are other manifestations of these willful acts throughout our culture in the ways in which I've been talking. So I'll, I'll stop before I get a triple zero. And thank you very much for your patience. Thank you so much, Mr. Riley. Uh, we referenced uh, St. Thomas Aquinas multiple times here, and I keep thinking, you know, the difficulties, we've got so much to pray for. So much to pray for. Because, you know, think of the... Um, the confusion that must have been stirred up in St. Thomas's soul when he wasn't supported by his family members in pursuing his vocation. You've got disorder on a supernatural level. At least he had order in the natural level, right? Now we've got people who, um, from their own parents, right, are being taught something that is supernaturally wrong and naturally wrong. We've got a lot to pray for, right? And when we're called to do one mile, we got to do two. Double down on charity, double down on truth. We've, right, we, can't, um, we can't love somebody by avoiding the truth, and we can't um, avoid sharing that in a charitable way when we do share it. Okay. Thank you. As you have your seats here, we'll begin with Q&A. Here we go. Uh, Mr. Riley, I had a question about Sartre. Um, about Sartre? Yes, you advanced an interpretation of Sartre this evening that I'd never heard before. Most commentaries on Sartre compare his early existentialist thought from the 30s and 40s to, uh, in contrast to his Marxist thought of the late 40s until his death. And you advanced it as a logical extension. Um, the, I, the, the apparent contrast, as I understand it, is that Marxism believes in impersonal historical forces that compel us toward a certain end, while Sartrean existentialism seems to posit some sort of radical freedom that would seem in contrast to this kind of Marxist cosmology. Um, could you perhaps uh, respond in greater detail to kind of the, the classical critique of Sartreanism? Okay, that's a very good question. Thank you so much for it. And the reason why I would say it's a logical continuum is that Marxism is based on the primacy of force, the primacy of will over reason. And Sartre's existentialism is also uh, the primacy of will. 
uh, over reason because reality is not constituted in any essential way. Man is not constituted in any essential way. Therefore, what you make him is uh, the result of what you will to make him. And Marxism-Leninism was the quintessential uh, embodiment of uh, the primacy of the will in the 20th century. I had competitors in, in the form of uh, nationalist socialism, but it was international socialism. They were both different forms of the primacy of the will. And he chose the communist version rather than the Nazi version. But why? You know, for maybe because he was French and that was German. But reason provides no guidance there, since uh, once you assert the primacy of will, uh, there are no reference points. He makes clear we don't have a nature that there are no reference points by which to make these decisions other than our will to make of us what we, what we will. Does that help? It does help. Okay. Mr. Riley, will you please read those quotes that you were not able to at the end of the talk? Ah. <laughs> There's the question I was waiting for. Now I'd have to find them. <laughs> okay, here we go. Here's Gilson. Gilson, G-I-L-S-O-N, in my inimitable French accent as Gilson. Etienne Gilson. Here's what he says. It is a well-known fact that modern existentialism is not exactly a gay affair. I mean, this is 1948, so don't misread the gay affair. <laughs> but there is no reason why it should be. If to be an existent, that means to be an existing thing, to be an existent is to have existence, and if existence is but a constant failure to be, coupled with a personal and futile effort to overcome that failure, human life can scarcely be a pleasant thing. You see, you're in jeopardy. If you're matter with no form, what are you? You're really nothing. And Sartre said man's really nothing until he makes himself something. Well, you have a couple apprehensive moments in there, don't you? What, when today's existentialism scrutinizes existence, all you can find in it at its very core is that ceaseless tottering of all existence, the, the individual existence, to their own fall and their equally ceaseless effort to bridge the ontological chasm which separates any two of their successive instants. In doctrines in which existence is but a lack of being, Unless in Jean-Paul Sartre's own words, it is a disease of being. It is no wonder that the realization of one's own actual existence is achieved in either anguish or in nausea. It must coincide it with the realization of its own absurdity, finally to end in despair. Nausea, of course, was the title of one of uh, Sartre's novels. I'll never forget it because I was very sick <laughs> when, when I was in college. So I was lying in bed, sick as a dog, for two days, and I had this terrible course in existentialism. And when I was that ill, I read Nausea. <laughs> that cured me of existentialism, I can tell you. <laughs> Now, Joseph Pieper is much shorter, metaphysically, quoting Pieper, metaphysically and theologically, the notion of acedia <clears throat> means that a man does not, in the last resort, give the consent of his will to his own being. Does not give consent of his will to his own being. That beneath the dynamic activity of his existence, he is still not at one with himself. That, as the Middle Ages expressed it, sadness overwhelms him when he is confronted with the divine goodness imminent in himself." Unquote. 
Sadness overwhelms him when he is confronted with the divine goodness imminent in himself. Sadness overcomes him when he realizes Aristotle's statement about that divine part of himself. He's sad about that. And of course, if you don't give assent to your own being, you don't give assent to your own goodness, you are obviously rejecting being itself, goodness itself, which is God. How's that for light touch? I'd like to go back to the military. What does the military think will happen when one of these male-slash-female soldiers is captured and is not able to receive whatever medication to maintain their new sexuality? What is going to happen between our country and the captors? I haven't seen the training slide on that one, but there... Actually, there is a training slide in here about cultural sensitivities in other countries. Uh, if you're training police uh, and, you know, you're a, a them or something and you're training male, it's just very touchy, obviously. I'm sure within the $3.7 billion that can be uh, examined and applied to. In the modern world, you saying we are characterized by the primacy of will over reason. Uh, what is seen as actually sort of driving the will? I mean, what is it that, that impels the decisions that we make, that we attempt to implement through reason? Lib libido dominandi. <laughs> I mean, that's St. Augustine, right? It's the libido dominandi. It's, it's our disordered will. It's our disordered uh, appetites. So it's original sin, or you can... Um, I just want to say, don't get too discouraged. <laughs> because um, this can't last. Rebellions against reality can't last. You may have heard this uh, remark. God always forgives, man sometimes, nature never. And uh, so uh, there actually is to a, a nature to things and it's gonna bite back um, at a high, very high price to the people who have been attempting to defy it. Uh, but unfortunately for the so society at large, and that's why um, the ICC, in having a forum and daring to address a subject like this, is an indispensable organization and a source of tremendous refreshment to all of us. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mr. Riley. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us. <laughs>